Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Michael Barrison, who is charged with the attempted murders of Lauren Kanarek and Robert Goodwin in Long Valley, New Jersey. Kanarek was struck in the chest by two bullets from Barrison's weapon, and as it was undisputed that Barrison fired those shots, his legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane at the time of the shooting, and in the alternative because he fired those shots in self-defense. In our last episode, we continued our look at the prosecution's direct examination of their expert witness, Dr. Lewis Schlesinger, with a look at some of the tests that the doctor used to evaluate the defendant. On today's installment, we continue that exploration. That's all coming up right after the break. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's mid-afternoon on April 7th, 2022. As we ended our last episode, Judge Stephen Taylor called for a break as Prosecutor Christopher Shellhorn was leading his expert witness, Dr. Lewis Schlesinger, through a rebuttal of the testimonies of defense experts Dr. Stephen Simring and Charles Hassan. Specifically, Dr. Schlesinger was pointing out flaws in the implementation of certain tests that Dr. Hassan used to evaluate the defendant, including the Rorschach test. We begin today after the break as Shellhorn resumes his questioning of Dr. Schlesinger. After just one final question on the Rorschach, you indicated that you had uh, reviewed Dr. Hassan's uh, rescoring with the Exner. What was your impression of that rescore? Well, the, the, um, again, the, the test, it's invalid without a doubt, but um, there's some interesting points here that seem to have been left out. For example, if you look at page 12 of, of 13, number 21, says here, this is from the, I'm reading it now. This person, meaning Michael, appears to be excessively committed to seeing the world accurately. He is consequently capable of perceiving people and events realistically, but he is also likely to be the highly precise impressions he forms of situations. Only rarely we allow himself the risk of forming an impression that may be inexact. And then it goes down uh, to number 24, which I thought was important. Generally speaking, he displays an adaptive capacity to think logically and coherently. He is capable, as most people, of coming to reasonable conclusions about relationships between events and maintaining a connected flow of associations which ideas follow each other in a comprehensible manner. I think that's important because that's the opposite of a psychosis. His thinking is clear and logical based on this. I don't know why that was left out. And then it goes on the next page, page 13 of 13, going down the third paragraph, it would start situation-related stress, because he's consequently more vulnerable than most people becoming acutely upset, anxious, even disorganized, and his situationally determined stress overload is also likely to impair his capacity for self-control and create a potential for impulsiveness in what he thinks and says or does. 
And then two paragraphs down, he displays an adaptive capacity to think logically and coherently. And the last sentence says, there's a connected flow of associations in which ideas follow each other in a comprehensive manner. This is all the opposite of a psychosis. Why isn't that in a report? Why wouldn't you put that in? Come on. So I thought that was um, noteworthy, and that's why I'm, I'm bringing it up. And doctor, is that the RIAP? No, that's the, the Rorschach Interpretation Assistance Program. It's the Exner, what he got from the Exner. Doctor, moving on to the MMPI, could you generally explain what that test is and what you're looking for? Sure. The MMPI, it's the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. That test has been around since the 1940s from the University of Minnesota. That's why it's called Minnesota. Personality Inventory, multiphasic just means many different parts. The test has been around for years, and it has been re-standardized in the early 90s by um, a guy named James Butcher. And James Butcher is from the University of Minnesota. So he's very knowledgeable on this test. He's really the person who did the re-standardization. I've used the MMPI for years, and what I use is I use the 10 basic clinical scales, 1 through 10, and 10 validity scales. Now, here's how the test is set up. Before you interpret the profile, the test tells you how the subject was taking the test. Were they being overly defensive and and denying problems that everybody has, such as never had a headache, never had a bad day? True. Well, that will elevate that validity profile. Are they over-endorsing items to make them appear more disturbed than they actually are? They have every symptom, bugs crawling up my skin, uh, hear voices, Martians control my brain, things like that, an over-endorsement of items. Or are they trying to respond to items in a socially appropriate fashion, showing high moral values and what's socially expected? For example, before I vote in an election, I thoroughly investigate the candidate's position on all of the issues. True. Well, very few people do that, but it's socially appropriate. So before you interpret the 10 clinical scales, you look to see how the person was going about taking the test. And then you look at the 10 clinical scales. Very important. Lecture number one in the MMPI, if you're teaching this, is the labels of the 10 clinical scales should never be taken literally. It was never meant to be that. So for example, If a person has a high elevation on scale four, the label is psychopathic deviant. That does not mean the person is a psychopath. It doesn't mean that. Scale eight is labeled schizophrenia. If a person has a high elevation on scale eight, it doesn't mean the person is schizophrenic. It never meant that. Scale six, for example, is labeled paranoia. If you have a high elevation on scale six, that does not mean the person is paranoid. As a matter of fact, most, not all, but most flagrantly paranoid individuals don't score high on that at all. And if you look at Butcher's book, I showed the prosecutor, I don't know if that, any of that came out, but anyway, he has a section that says, do not literally interpret these scale names. And the first sentence is, if you do, you're poorly trained. That's not me. That's Butcher saying that. So if you think a high elevation on scale six means you're paranoid, it means one thing, according to Butcher, you're poorly trained. You don't understand what's going on. And if you read the description from Butcher on an elevation on scale six, 
It's nothing about delusions and, and, and all the rest of it. So when I hear, for example, in Dr. Hassan's report, and I, I I'm, do not want to be disrespectful at all, and I'm trying my best not to be, and I don't want to be, but, I, but he said something to the effect, I don't know anybody that would look at this high-scale six and interpret it anything different than paranoid psychosis. Really? I don't know anybody that would, including Butcher, who wrote the book on it. So it's just incorrect. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. After leading Dr. Schlesinger through his critique of Dr. Charles Hassan's interpretation of the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, or MMPI, that he conducted on Michael Barrisone, Prosecutor Shellhorn next asks the witness about his own administration of the same test on the defendant. Now, when you gave this test to Michael Barrison, what were the results uh, that you came up with? Well, I gave the test, the validity on page 53, if anybody's following this, the validity scales show a non-significant exaggeration of symptoms. So that's not a problem. There was a slight attempt to give socially approved answers concerning self-control and moral values, but it didn't invalidate the test. Sometimes the validity scales are high and it invalidates it. That is not the case here. I found mild depression, anxiety, suicide threats and attempts are possible, inner anger, irritability, suspiciousness. These are common symptoms and individuals likely control their anger, but sometimes they episodically explode and surprise those around them. Now, how am I getting that? It's not just scale six, but he had an, another scale elevation without getting into the weeds. High scale four, low scale five. That's sometimes called a masculine protest, meaning individuals feel insecure and try to compensate for that by demonstrating that they're dominant in some way. Also with the MMPI, what you do do is you have to look at what's called critical items. Critical items are what items is he responding to that's elevating the scale? This is common sense, and it really have to do it. Now, I'm looking at, this is Dr. Hassan's findings, and if you look at critical items, let me show you, these are the items that elevated the scale that Michael responded to. Also, I should say this before I even get into this, it is not at all uncommon for criminal defendants pending a serious trial to have a high elevation on scale six because a lot of it is reality-based. People are persecuting him and, and out to get him and talking about him. So here's the items that Michael responded to. I am sure I get a raw deal from life. True. Someone has it in for me. True. I believe I'm being plotted against. True. I believe I'm being followed. True. I feel I've often been punished without cause. True. It is safer to trust nobody. True. Given Michael's situation now and the circumstances you're in, this is all reality-based. This is not a delusion or, or a psychosis. This is the, what he's experiencing right now. 
There's a, there's a couple of other ones. Someone has it in for me. True. I believe I'm being plotted against. True. I believe I'm being followed. True. I believe I'm being talked about. True. I have no enemies who really wish to harm me. False. People say insulting and vulgar things about me. True. Every one of these is reality-based. And so when you get an MMPI, you have to use your common sense. You don't throw your common sense out and, and not look at what he responded to. That's what you have to do. And when you do it, you see all of those are reality-based. There is no basis at all to conclude that the results of the MMPI shows paranoid psychosis. It does not. It absolutely does not. Doctor, you didn't uh, render a diagnosis based on your administering the MMPI or the results you got from that test? Of course not. You never, no diagnosis from a psychological test, none. Before I ask you about the two other two tests that you gave, doctor, uh, did you also review Dr. Hassan's, uh, or Hassan's, excuse me, results on the PAI? Yes. The PAI, it's called the Personality Assessment Inventory. This is a good test. Now, I mentioned the, the Exeter bad test, bad scoring system, Rorschach good test, but system is bad. The MCMI, the Milan Clinical Multi-Axle Inventory, he also gave, which is a terrible test, shouldn't use. But this is a good test the personality assessment inventory. I don't know of any research article that said otherwise. Um, it's like the MMPI, basically, a little shorter. It's very good. Now, when you look at this test, I think it's 17 pages long. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Now, you look at this, and, and again, this on the cover sheet here says what all of these say. And I'm going to just read the beginning of it. It says, interpreted information contained in this report should be viewed only as one source of hypotheses about the individual being evaluated. Do you see that same in all of these tests? These are hypotheses, suggestions. You don't make a diagnosis based on a test. But anyway, when you look at this test, I open up the first page, and what do I see on the top in bold capital letters? Warning. Validity scales indicate hypotheses may not be valid. It doesn't say, consider this, take a look at this, by the way, bullet point. No, warning. And, and so this is on the top of the page. Every page, every single page of the 17 pages has it in bold print in capital letters on the top, warning. And then you go to the actual validity scales, because there's a whole uh, validity of the test results. Now, you don't use any other validity measures other than this validity measure. This is the validity measure used by the test itself. So when you look at this, and I'm on page nine. And doctor, just to remind the jury, when you say the validity of the results, what does that mean? It means the validity of the results that they found in this test. Warning, it may not be accurate. So this is the test that was given to Michael Barrison, and the test results indicate the validity is questionable. More than questionable. Now, when you put warning on something, that's to me, that's more than quite. They say results are questionable. Take another look. No, they said warning. And then they get into it on page nine, the last paragraph. The degree to which response styles may have affected or distorted the report of symptomatology on the inventory is also assessed. It means they're doing this. Certain of these indicators fall outside the normal range, suggesting that the respondent may not have answered in a completely forthright manner. The nature of his responses might lead the evaluator to form a somewhat inaccurate impression of the client based upon the style of responding below. And then it goes on the next page. And again, this is in capital letters. 
The test results potentially involve considerable distortion and are unlikely to be an accurate reflection of the respondent's objective clinical status. The following interpretation is provided only as an indication of the respondent's description. And then it goes on. Doctor, in that same paragraph, is there anything in that paragraph about malingering? Yes. Right above that, it says, with respect to negative impression management. Impression management is a word means people try to manage their impression to other people. Patients do it. Defendants do it all the time. Negative impression management is you want to appear more disturbed than you actually are. Positive impression management is you want to appear less disturbed than you actually are. So here it says, with respect to negative impression management, appearing more disturbed, there are indications suggesting that the client tended to portray himself in an especially negative or pathological manner. Some deliberate distortion of the clinical picture may be present. The critical items should be reviewed to evaluate the possibility of malingering. And then it goes on. The important point is, where is that in his report? I read his report and he said the validity indicators are great and here, here we go. That's not true. I mean, come on now. Again, I don't want to be disrespectful and I, it's a little uncomfortable doing it because someone told me he's actually in, in the courtroom. So I feel a little uncomfortable doing it. But uh, anyway, you know. Doctor, let me, let me ask you, you just used the term uh, malingering. There. Yeah. Can you tell the jury what that term means and where it comes from? Faking an illness, it's as simple as that. A, a, a little boy doesn't want to go to school because he, he didn't study for his arithmetic test, tells his mother he has a stomach ache. A person with a mental disorder wants to feign mental symptoms for obvious legal reasons. And without jumping ahead too far, did you find evidence in this case of malingering in the defendant's case? I didn't find any evidence of malingering. Dr. Hassan did, but didn't report it as such. Let me, and let me, maybe let me ask the question a little more pointedly. Did you find any evidence of malingered amnesia? Oh, malingered amnesia, yes. Yeah, not malingering, yeah, yes. I found malingered amnesia, absolutely. But not malingering a mental disorder. And can you explain the difference between what you just uh, answered and what I had asked? Well, malingering generally means to malinger an illness, to malinger a disorder. Malingered amnesia is different. That's when you claim you don't remember what had been done. Malingered amnesia, I mean, I can go into it a, a lot of detail, but yeah, it, that's, that's so it sim can, simply. It, it can mean different things uh, in different situations. Malingered amnesia means simply, it means only one thing. It means you're feigning loss of memory. That's what it means. Doctor, I want to direct your attention at this point to some of uh, the last uh, two tests that you gave to Michael Barrison. Mm -hmm. Can you tell the jury what the TAT is? The TAT is the thematic apperception test. This is an old test from the 1930s. It shows pictures of all sorts of people in, in ambiguous situations. And your job is to create a story. And in the process of the story, hopefully you'll reveal yourself and more information about you will emerge. I give uh, the TAT. TAT is not scored. This is a projective test. And you, you, you interpret it at the level of face validity. Face validity means on the face of it, can you see, can you understand what's going on within the person? So for example, if a patient says, there's a person leaning over a couch, crying, thinking of suicide, her life is terrible, this is the end. You've got a good idea of what's coming from the person's mind. You don't need a score for that, a scoring system at, at, at all. So I gave uh, Michael that test, and he gave, ref he gave themes involving depression, despair, loss of hope, inner conflict, suicide, interpersonal loss, and significant 
inner turmoil. There was really nothing particularly outstanding. There's no question Michael's depressed. There's no, there's no dispute, in my opinion, anyhow, uh, of that. You also give him a projective test. Well, that was a projective test. I gave him another one called the projective figure drawings. This is a very simple test. You just ask people to draw a picture of a house, a tree, a person, a person of the opposite sex, and the worst thing you could think of. Usually you get nothing, not much. Like in this case, you really don't get uh, much of anything. And what do you mean by that? Well, nothing really significant, for example. So you, you ask a person to draw a picture of a house because a house is very important to people. That's where you live. If you ever drove past a home that, you're, um, that you grew up in, and your parents sold it, and new people lived there, you get a funny feeling because your ego boundaries extend beyond you to your house. So it's important. Tree, person, opposite sex, and the worst thing you think of. Usually you get not much, but sometimes you do. And I, I gave the, I don't know if it- What would be an example of a significant drawing? Well, I, I gave you some drawings that I've included in a, a chapter that I wrote, and I have a lot of these in my book of dismembered people, exposed genitals, uh, you know, violence, and this sort of thing. Those are significant. Now, we didn't have, didn't have that here. You interpret it at, at a level of face validity. And most competent people do that. Dr. Hassan's report, he refers to, he referred to a number of people, which I thought was quite interesting because a number of the people they refer to as experts, I not only know these people, I've worked with them. About four of them wrote forwards to my book. And he, he referred to one of my books. He referred to Reed Malloy, who is a very prominent person. And he wrote a forward to one of my books, wrote a chapter in another book, and I wrote a chapter in one of his. But I gave you an article, I don't know if this came out, where he shows a picture, a, a figure drawing that's very illustrative, which he put in an article that he published. So, you know, to say that this isn't done is just incorrect. Now, Doctor, I want to ask you about your particular uh, diagnoses or conclusions in this case. Mm -hmm. And you had already mentioned early on the DSM. Right. Uh, you mentioned that there are different editions uh, over the course of time. Can you just explain to the jury, in your own words, what the significance of the DSM is to your field? Well, the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders is really the manual that lays out the diagnostic criteria for all of the diagnoses. And they go through different revisions. The, the DSM-5, I think it was 2013, is the latest revision, but there'll be another one in a couple of years. Why? Because research comes in, you understand things more, it's developing, it's evolving. And so uh, it changes. It's been around, DSM-1 was published in, in 1952. And this is the way you make a diagnosis. You use the criteria delineated in the DSM. Now, when I make a diagnosis in a forensic case, I do it with the manual open. Because who can memorize this? Nobody can memorize this manual. How are you going to know? And so I do it with the manual open. And I remember distinctly, I said to Michael, I'm going to, because sometimes people wonder, what are you bringing this big book out for? I said, I, and I, said I don't want to make a mistake. And I simply just go in through all of the criteria and evaluated him with all the, all the criteria, all the diagnoses that were raised in this case. You indicated that the DSM-5 is the fifth edition over the course of time. What's your understanding of how, or the process that goes into a new edition coming out? Oh, over the course of, let's say, 10, 15 years, research is published, and the, the, the DSM folks will put together a committee on each different diagnosis. They'll brainstorm as to what the research tells us, and then they'll make modifications to try to keep everything up to date and, you know, best practices uh, and so on.
Now, you said that when you conducted your examination of Michael Barrison, you were aware of Dr. Simring's diagnosis? Yes. Did you consider a number of diagnoses in addition to what Dr. Simring found? Yes. Why did you do that? Because other diagnoses were raised in the case, and I wanted to do a thorough job and make sure I considered everything. What does the term psychosis mean? Psychosis simply means a break with reality, and it's manifested by symptoms such as hallucinations and delusions. Hallucinations are perceptual. Auditory hallucination, you hear voices. Visual hallucinations, you see things that aren't there, usually of religious content. Olfactory hallucinations, you smell horrible smells, rotting flesh. Gustatory hallucinations, horrible tastes in your mouth, metal. Uh, tactile hallucinations, bugs crawling under my skin. Those are hallucinations. Delusions are false beliefs not based in reality. So, for example, if you think two and two is six, that's not a delusion. That's you're incorrect. But if you think two and two is six because Martians changed the number system, that's a delusion because there's a break with reality. That's a bizarre delusion. Now, there's some non-bizarre delusions that can actually occur in daily life. The difference being Martians is not an occurrence in daily life, but other things are, and you could develop a delusion. So I'll give you an example to illustrate a non-bizarre delusion. <clears throat> I know of a case of a middle-aged guy, worked at a large company. He was a manager of like a, a, a unit, and the company was going through some sort of inspection or review, and he slowly developed an idea that the administration of the company wanted, they were, the company was going to fail this reviewer inspection. They were going to blame him for it. They're all plotting now to blame him. He'll lose his job. He'll never get another job and his life will be completely destroyed. And when he said things similar to that to his coworkers, they said to him, no, what are you talking about? Everything is fine. The, the company's not going to be a uh, fail. No one's trying to get rid of you. And his response was, you don't understand. You just don't understand. That's very typical in a delusion. The people in your circle around you try to dissuade you of this delusional belief. In that example you just gave, was there any initial trigger for him having that delusion? It, it was insidious. It was insidious as to why that happened. But all of that went on for an extended period of time, a couple of months, he became more and more delusional with respect to this conspiracy. And what finally happened is he's walking down the hall and the head, um, I guess the president or the head administrator said to him, good morning, doctor. Uh, good morning, doctor. Good morning, Mr. Bailey. And that was it because he told his friends, he always called me Bob. And today he called me Mr. Bailey. See, you see the, you see the sign? That's a delusion. That's a delusion. That's a non-bizarre delusion because, I mean, pe people get fired from their jobs but this was a break with reality. So that's essentially what a delusion is, a fixed false belief not based in reality. With that answer from Dr. Schlesinger, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Michael Barrison. Join us on our next installment as we conclude our look at the testimony of psychologist Dr. Louis Schlesinger, including his critique of Dr. Stephen Simring's assessment of Michael Barrison, as well as Dr. Schlesinger's own diagnosis of the defendant. If you'd like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracon. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and the trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison. <laughs>